Mormon Discussion Podcast is about helping Latter-day Saints like you lead with faith while tackling deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping the podcast alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber at mormondiscussionpodcast.org. Again, that's mormondiscussionpodcast, all one word, dot org. You can do this for as little as $1.50 a month or $12 a year. And this will also reward you by letting you listen to premium episodes like this one months before the general public has access. Thanks for listening. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. In our interviews with David Bakavoy, we talked about the historical Jesus. We talked about Bart Ehrman and some of the studies and research and books published that essentially tear down the divine Christ. In our interview with Brother Bakavoy, we talk at length about these criticisms with David offering a middle way, a way to see some of the criticisms that are out there and still yet see the divine Christ. I also wanted to make sure that we offered a wide array and a spectrum of, of beliefs on this issue so that a member of the church could take in all the information and recognize that combining scholars like David Bakavoy and N.T. Wright, who a four-part series will follow here, that there are plenty of ways to reconcile scholars like the view of Bart Ehrman and others who tear down the divine Jesus and see that there is plenty of room for Christ to still be the Son of God and the Savior and Redeemer of the world. So now on to our four-part series of N.T. Wright, where he discusses the historical Jesus. I've had some wonderful questions here. I can't possibly deal properly with any of them because almost all of them require a careful five or ten minute exposition to make sure it's nuanced and balanced. And I'm just going to take the risk of running at a few of them and then come back to some more of them later. And if when it comes to the Q&A, yours is one that hasn't got answered yet, I'm sorry, please do feel free to ask it personally. Um, A couple of people have asked about the cryptic language of Jesus' proclamation and have worried, uh, and naturally I think, as to whether this means that uh, the whole language of the New Testament is actually less determinable than we might have thought it was, and particularly in the light of the Reformation's insistence that we must have the literal sense of Scripture and not all the fanciful senses that the medievals had got. The problem comes, of course, with the fact that when the, when the Reformation was talking about the literal sense of Scripture, they meant what the original writers really meant, and frequently what the original writers really meant was multi-layered and was already that way. The problem comes when people try and impose other meanings, other interpretations which the original writers didn't have in mind, and this is a constant struggle in scholarship to figure out as close as we can, and it's always an ongoing task, what they really did mean themselves, and then we can say, are there other meanings that under God and humbly we are allowed to hear in that text beyond what they did? So to, this, is, this is difficult, but a lot of the Bible is poetry, and if you know anything about poetry, you know that you simply can't feed it into a computer and get the meaning out. That's not how poetry works. It has, a, has an effect on you, and much of Jesus' teaching was poetical in that sense. Um, Three questions I've had about the Incarnation. This is, of course, the thing that has taxed some of the best minds in the last 2,000 years. And uh, I can't, again, put that into a test tube and, and do the experiments and explain it for you. But the New Testament writers are quite emphatic 
that Jesus of Nazareth, the person, the human being, who is fully human being, Jesus of Nazareth, is somehow strangely to be identified with and identified as one who was from all eternity equal with God. That's there in Philippians and Colossians, it's there in John, it's there in Hebrews, it's there by implication in dozens and dozens of other places. So that without stopping being Jewish-style monotheists, the early Christians proclaim that they are monotheists over against paganism, just like any other Jews would be, but they're discovering Jesus as part of the meaning of the one God. They knew that that was paradoxical, just as we do, but that's what we have to do business with. I don't think I can take that any further at the moment, though it's obviously a huge and important question. Um, There are some uh, practical questions there which we'll come to. Somebody here quite naturally saying, you haven't offered us very much evidence, uh, how come your view is right and everyone else's seems to be wrong? Well, that's, um, I, I have a, that, that's it's a perfectly fair question, because you're right, I have not offered you the detailed evidence. However, I have told you where I have offered it, and uh, if 700 pages isn't enough for you, then there's more coming next year. Um, so, but, but, but the point, the serious point is, that history is something you do with other people and it's always a dialogue but if you're if every sentence is well I might be right right or I might be wrong and I'm not quite sure you get an even longer book and it becomes a very tedious one so the way you do history is you make a hypothesis and you show how the evidence fits with that hypothesis and you deal with rival theories that uh, appear to offer other hypotheses and you show why they don't account for the evidence as well as this one does and then you wait for other people to show you why yours hasn't quite worked and there are some things which I have thought, yep, this criticism is on target. I've got to take account of that, and, and so on. Um, so, so I am simply representing one moment in the dialogue, and I would invite you all to join in by getting stuck into the first century texts, by learning to think about who Jesus actually was, by celebrating his first century Jewish humanness and getting to know it, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And yesterday he was a first century Palestinian Jew, and that's who he still is. Figure that one out. Somebody said to me after a talk like this, do you mean to say you worship a first century Palestinian Jew? I said, yes. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That is part of the scandal and the shock of the incarnation. So don't take it on trust from me. Use what I'm doing as a stimulus to your own further thought and uh, and inquiry. And uh, there's... A question here about Albert Schweitzer. Did, was it really true that God would break into history, shatter the cosmos, and end history as it was known? No more business as usual. Was this what the Gospels were talking about? Well, yes and no. The Gospels were, were saying that this really was the living God coming and breaking into history. But what would that look like? It would not look like suddenly the earth and the heavens all melting and collapsing and something totally different arising in their stead. It would look like a young Jewish prophet riding into Jerusalem on a donkey in tears and going off to give his life a ransom for many. And somehow we have to get our heads around the fact that that was the apocalyptic event, coupled with his resurrection and ascension and the gift of the Spirit. You always have to say these in case somebody thinks you don't believe in them, but I'm assuming that whole package there. Um, Yes, there are problems about, somebody asked about problems, but doing history from one point of view, whether it's a white western point of view or a black point of view or whatever, and yes, all history has to be done in dialogue, 
and I know that my dialogue partners are not as widely spread as I would like. I would like to be more in dialogue with people from radically different parts of the world and different cultures who are reading the Bible with just as much integrity and more as I'm trying to do, and I need to be in touch with them as well. I, I'm aware of that. And uh, ultimately, we must all beware of our particular biases. But you can't don't ever imagine that there is such a thing as a point of view which is nobody's point of view. Any historian who thinks that they can attain a God's eye point of view, a bird's eye point of view, whatever, is just whistling in the dark, fooling themselves. I've got to tell it as I see it while listening as humbly as I can to what everyone else is saying. Nevertheless, this is how I see it. And likewise, I hope that my conversation partners will listen to the way I see it and maybe take account of that as well. That's the way it goes. Somebody here raised a question about uh, what you do if you're raised in a fundamentalist church, moved away into a more liberal view, but, and, uh, but could never return to fundamentalist Christianity. What, what alternatives could one offer? Um, th this is very strange for somebody who is an English Anglican because we don't have a whole lot of fundamentalism in England the way that you do and we don't have quite the same uh, shrill radicalism that you do and uh, it's, that, that makes it very comfortable for me I can sit in the middle as an English Anglican and do my scholarship and say my prayers and watch people coming to and fro on these different spectrums and think well, hope you're enjoying your journey I'm glad I don't have to take that one um, <laughs> but um, it, believe me, those are not the only options out there, fundamentalism and liberalism. This is actually a very serious point about the way in which American cultures have impinged upon the church, that you have your right wing and you have your left wing, and those fundamentalism and liberalism are often allied with your political parties to the detriment of both debates. And believe me, there are other ways of cutting the cake, theologically and politically, and I encourage you to go find them uncomfortable though it might be. Somebody here asked what I thought of Peterson's message as a companion to other translations. I'm afraid I have only glanced at it. I haven't used it with any seriousness, so I can't comment further on that. Somebody else here has asked a wonderful question. What is the good news? Is it the atonement? Is it the coming of the kingdom of God? Is it all of the above? It should have been both of the above, actually. But uh, um, in, in the... Um, in Paul's letters, the good news is the crucified and risen Jesus is the Lord of the world. The good news is not a message about you, it's a message about Jesus. Now, of course, because it's a message about Jesus, it is then a message about you. But if you say the gospel is God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, this makes it incredibly me-centered. The gospel is Jesus Christ is Lord. The crucified and risen Jesus is the Lord of the world. And under that great statement, there is all the room for you to find new life in the present and in the future. There is all the room for you to find new work to do for the kingdom. But that's the gospel, is the message about Jesus. A couple of questions about John's gospel, where it fits in. Most historical studies focus on the synoptic gospels, and I've done that myself. There is a huge problem there, which is simply one of strategy, that I keep coming back to John again and again, and I know that many scholars will say that whatever you think about the earlier parts of John, the trial narratives seem to be exact, well not exact, but close up 
descriptions of the sort of trial that would have happened, much more so than the rather clipped accounts that we have in the synoptics. But the rest of John is, of course, highly controverted, and any attempt to use it in historical reconstruction will simply get you a string of uh, rubbishing reviews who will say this man can't be a serious scholar because he thinks he can use John to do history. So as a, as a purely strategic tactic... Uh, when I was writing my big book about Jesus and the subsequent ones, I simply used the synoptic tradition with occasional reference to John. I have not actually written about that. I have now written the little commentary on John in my little series, so it's called John for Everyone, and I've got the first copy in my bag, and it's actually published in two or three weeks' time. Um, and I did that with fear and trembling, because I'm not a Johannine scholar in any serious way. But I find again and again, just to give you a little hint... I find that again and again when I look at John, uh, if I come with the assumption that John has a very, very high, perhaps docetic Christology in which Jesus is just a divine figure who seems to be human but isn't really, well, you could read it like that. But I then notice that John says the point is that the word became flesh, and I then notice that some of the great statements in John, that I am the light of the world, I am the, the, the bread which comes down from heaven, and so on, are precisely the Israel-shaped kind of things that I can Imagine some of the great would-be messiahs of the period saying, like Bar Kokhba, son of the star, of whom Jerome said that he gave out that he was a great light come from heaven. Maybe Bar Kokhba said, I am the light of the world. It's the sort of thing that a would-be messiah might well say. I look forward to a freshly Jewish reading of John in which we might actually explore some of those things from a different angle. That doesn't solve the problem, it merely um, reposes it. I think actually the rest of these relate more to show, yes, uh, to, to, to what I'm going to be getting to now. Um, so I'll try and come back to those at the end. What I'm now going to do in what remains of this time, the next 40 minutes, God willing, is to look with you at this question, Jesus and the kingdom today and tomorrow. And there are all sorts of things I would love to say to you about this, and I don't have long, but the questions will, I hope, precipitate us into some of the more specific discussions. And I want to take as the way into this the resurrection narratives in the four canonical Gospels. Uh, I, of course, talked here last year about the resurrection and produced a short version of my argument about Jesus and his resurrection, and I'm not going to rehearse all of that. I'm going to take that for granted, and you can get the tapes, or you can read the book that's coming out next year, or whatever. But I want to look with you at these resurrection narratives in the reverse, uh, the likely reverse chronological order, that is John, Luke, Matthew, and Mark, and see that as a starting point for our reflections about what it means to be kingdom people ever since Easter. And I notice, and, and, and this, it seems to me, is one of the most striking things about the resurrection narratives from all sorts of points of view. I notice that nowhere in those four resurrection narratives does anyone say, oh good, Jesus is raised from the dead, that means we will go to heaven when we die, or that means there really is a life after death and we will share it as well, or that means that we too will have resurrection life ultimately. It's fascinating because everywhere else in the New Testament, pretty well everywhere else, when it talks about Jesus' resurrection, it relates it to the fact that other people will be raised as well. 
whether it's in Romans 8 or 1 Corinthians 15 or in the multiple other places where Jesus' resurrection is discussed in the whole of the rest of the New Testament, it's usually woven in with questions about what happens to other people, to Jesus' people or to all people, when they die and what happens to them beyond. But in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, this is not a topic in the Easter narratives. Very interesting. Easter is not, for them, primarily about, that's happened to him, so what's going to happen to us? It's primarily about, that's happened to him, so where are we in the world? What has happened to the cosmos? What must we now do to be Easter people in and for the world? I look forward to seeing fresh Easter hymns written which will embody this because half of the Easter hymns in our hymn books are simply about Christ is risen therefore he's gone before us into the sky and we'll go there too. Well that is there in the New Testament but it's not what the four Easter narratives themselves say. By the way the sky is of course a metaphor but you knew that. With Easter, with Easter it isn't just a tomb that has opened up to reveal a surprise inside. It is that a whole new world has opened. A great door has swung open in cosmic history, which will never again be shut. And you are called, we are called, to go through that door into God's new world and live in it and work in it and help to bring it about. We are here into this to-and-fro idea, which I've tried to explore in some of my writings, between an achievement on the one hand and the implementing of that achievement on the other. Some people have found that really rather difficult to grasp. And, and the, the picture of the door swinging open is, is one way of doing it. The idea that somebody has forced the door open and our task is not to open it again because it's already open. Our task is to go through. That's what I mean by implementing the achievement. Or, I've often used these illustrations, the, the illustration of the medical researcher who in the laboratory after sustained work and research finally comes up with the formula that will produce the medication that will cure this particular disease. Now what do the other doctors then have to do? They don't have to do all that research again. That's been done. That has been achieved, accomplished. They have to implement that accomplishment by taking the medicine to those who need it. <clears throat> giving it to them in the appropriate doses. Or the other illustration I like is, is the musical one, that a composer will struggle for months and perhaps years over writing this symphony in which all these musical ideas will be brought together into the right balance and framework and given true and exultant expression. What does the conductor then have to do? He doesn't have to write the symphony again. He has to conduct it so that the orchestra will play it and everyone will be thrilled by it and, and have this wonderful musical experience. This is implementing the achievement. The New Testament is a great deal about the achievement of Jesus, which is the one-off, unique, unrepeatable achievement. He's done it. This is what the reformers referred to as the finished work of Christ. We don't have to do it again. What we have to do is to implement it, to live by it ourselves and to make it known in the world, to go through the door, to apply the medicine to those who are sick, to conduct the music so that the whole world can join in. 
This is so particularly in John's Gospel. If you've got a Bible, you might like to look at this. I haven't made you open your Bibles too much in this session um, because I've been going so fast through various texts and ideas. But, you, but even if you haven't got a Bible, you can look this up <coughs> for yourselves afterwards. John's Gospel... <coughs> John is one of these astonishing writers who apparently artlessly says quite simple little things which when you pause and think about them are in fact incredibly revealing. <clears throat> and John says at the beginning of his resurrection narrative in chapter 20 and then he repeats it in verse 19 that it was the first day of the week. Now you probably if you're reading John you would just gloss over that not even notice because you knew it was Sunday morning it's not a problem. Maybe your diaries start with Monday, it's the first day of the week, but you know that it ought to be Sunday, really. So you don't think any more about it. What is John saying when he repeats it particularly? John has had this sequence of signs running through his gospel, the seven signs. A little controversial as to how you count which bits in it, but I think it works so that the crucifixion is itself the seventh sign. And now we have the new week beginning. Or you can count the days through the last week of Jesus' life. And Jesus dies on the Friday, which is the sixth day, which is very interesting. Think back to Genesis chapter 1. What happens on the sixth day? On the sixth day, among other things, the human beings are created in the image and likeness of God. And on the sixth day, Pilate brings Jesus out before the crowds and says, Behold, the man. Here is the truly human one. And then what happens on the seventh day? God rests on the seventh day. <clears throat> and in John's gospel, on the seventh day, God rests in the darkness of the tomb. His work is complete. He said so at the end of the sixth day. Tetelestai. It's finished. It's done. The work of new creation is now about to begin. Because the work of the old creation and its redemption has been finished. God rested on the seventh day. And now on the first day of the week, God's new creation starts. So it isn't just that Jesus happens to be raised. Sometimes when people object to the idea of Jesus' resurrection these days, they say, you know, why would God just do that for one person? Wouldn't that be an odd thing of God to do? I mean, very nice for Jesus, but what's it got to do with the rest of us? They haven't learned to read what the New Testament is saying, and God help us, those of us who believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus often haven't expressed it in this New Testament fashion. This is not just a bizarre miracle that happened to one person and how strange of God to do that. This is the beginning of new creation. <clears throat> so it's, you have to read John 20 and 21 within that sense of awe and wonder that you stand on the threshold of a new world. And you say, well, that's a very big idea. What's in it for me? Well, John tells stories about individual people, very, very vivid stories, the vividest stories of any of the Easter story. Mary comes to the tomb, grief and weeping. She is totally distraught. And she meets the risen Jesus. She doesn't recognize him. That often happens in the Easter stories. But he calls her by name. And then she realizes who it is. A hugely powerful image which generations of people have found speaking to them. Not knowing what's going on. Not knowing who this is. And then hearing him speak your own name. 
And the, 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 the thing he tells her to do is to go to the disciples. And he says, go to my brothers, verse 17, and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Up till now in John's gospel, Jesus has referred to God as either the father or my father or the father who sent me. Now... He says, my father and your father. Something has happened to change the relationship between the disciples and God. Because on the cross and in the resurrection, evil has been dealt with, a new world has begun. And where before they were just hangers-on, now they are children too. They share the sonship of Jesus. And so Peter and John, when they run to the tomb in those early verses, verses 3 and 4 and 5 and so on, they move from shock to faith. It's their personal story as well. They're they're running. There's a wonderful painting. I can't remember now who it's by. Peter and John running to the tomb. It's, I think, an Italian Renaissance painting. A tremendous picture of the, the tension and the drama. And they come to the tomb and John goes in, if it is John, the, the beloved disciple anyway, and he saw and believed, even though he hadn't yet figured out the scripture. And so in John 20, verses 19 to 23, John 20, verses 19 to 23, Jesus commissions them. And again, it's a, wor- a moment of new creation. He breathes on them, says, receive the Holy Spirit. And that sends us echoing back through Ezekiel 37, the the breath that comes into the dry bones that they may live, all the way back to Genesis 2, when God breathed into human nostrils the breath of life, and humans became living beings. And now we have Jesus breathing on them and saying, as the Father sent me, so I send you. I have to tell you that when I first started serious study of Jesus in his historical context. I needed to know this bit and I didn't really connect it because when you start discovering that Jesus really was and is a first century Palestinian Jew, he seems so strange that people say, how can he possibly have any relevance for me? If the parable of the sower meant all those specific things in the first century, how can I possibly preach on it today? Likewise, the prodigal son and so on. If it's also first century specific, is there anything left to carry across? Here is the answer. As the Father sent Jesus uniquely and decisively to Israel. So he sends you, Jesus' followers, in the power of the Spirit, into the world. As Jesus to Israel, so the church to the world. And at every point where you see Jesus challenging Israel, where you see Jesus wooing Israel into a new relationship with God, a new discovery of what it meant to be Israel, so you can translate that into the challenge that the church must issue to the world. Not because the world in general is called to be Israel, God's special people in the way that Israel was, but because all human beings are made in the image and likeness of God and called to bear that image in the world. And just as Israel was tempted to excuse me, to abuse her position of specialness in God's plan and fell to that temptation. So human beings are always tempted, collectively and individually, to abuse their image-bearingness and to use that as an opportunity for self-aggrandizement. Read Philippians 2 again, it's all there. And the call comes, no, if you collectively and individually go that route, 
You're going the wrong way, and God's judgment results on those who go that way. If you retain the sin of any, they are retained, said Jesus. But if you come and follow Jesus, you will discover genuine humanness, which begins with the words, if you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven. Notice how powerful forgiveness is as a theme in some of the resurrection narratives, John's and Luke's in particular. And then we have the wonderful scene with Thomas, my dear namesake. Thomas, who comes as a, he might have been a good Enlightenment skeptic. He wants hard evidence. He wants to touch as well as to see. He wants to know in the way that people like to know things. And what we find in the story of Thomas is the epistemological equivalent of the new exodus, or the epistemological outworking of the new exodus. Think of Thomas on the banks of the epistemological Red Sea with the Philistines, the the, the Egyptians behind him saying, "Um, you're stuck, we've got you, you need hard evidence and you'll never have it. There's no way to faith. And this sea in front of him, which he can't get through, Because everybody knows that people don't rise from the dead. And everybody knows that to ask for evidence means that there won't be any. And then Thomas, finding Jesus there in front of him, says, though the sea suddenly parts and he discovers it's time to walk through. There is a new sort of knowing. Let me read you something I wrote a couple of years ago when I was working with a musician friend on an oratorio based on John 20 and 21. The sea has parted. Pharaoh's hosts despair and doubt and fear and pride. No longer frighten us. We must cross over to the other side. The heaven bows down. With wounded hands, our exiled God, our Lord of shame. Before us, living, breathing stands. The word is near and calls our name. New knowing for the doubting mind, new seeing out of blindness grows, new trusting may the skeptic find, new hope through that which faith now knows. Because you see, so many find it easier to stay in Egypt, to go back to the epistemological Egypt, where at least we're safe, we know what we can know, and it comes out of modernist ways of knowing It's easier to stay there. It's easier to deny the resurrection, to stay in the old world. It's comfortable there. Much harder to set off when there's a wilderness journey ahead and you don't know where it is you're going. But we are called not just to touch and see. Thomas didn't actually touch. There are wonderful icons of Thomas touching Jesus, but the text doesn't say that he did. Jesus said, okay, Thomas, go ahead. And he realized this really was Jesus. And he says instead, my Lord and my God. And John says, John has Jesus say, it would have been even better, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And so John 20 points us to these extraordinarily deeply human situations, many of which we find it quite easy, I think, to identify with. Mary and her grief, Peter and the beloved disciple and their running to the tomb, Thomas in his doubt and his challenge to a new way of knowing. And then in John 21, that appendix to the gospel, it seems, there is this sense that they know they ought to be doing something, but they're not quite sure what. So they go fishing. And Jesus, is that what you do when you know you ought to be doing something you don't quite what? They go back to their old ways. Because there's a new world out there and it's scary. There are no maps for it. And Jesus comes 
and stands by the shore and gives them breakfast. The risen Jesus known in the context of the meal, as we'll see in Luke. And he helps them to fish, but they're not going to be doing too much fishing from now on because he has a new job, a new job for Simon at least. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Feed my sheep, tend my sheep, look after my lambs. And as you know, the triple question, do you love me, mirrors the triple denial of Peter. And this encounter too is full of poignant meaning for all those of us, and it's surely all of us, who know that we have let our Lord down in this way or that, great ways or small. And we come back with Peter and we say, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And then we discover to our astonishment that the form that forgiveness takes is a new job to do. Isn't that extraordinary? It's not just, okay, fine, let bygones be bygones. It's right, there's work out there. And it's shepherding. Who is the shepherd? Jesus is the good shepherd. Jesus is sharing his own shepherding ministry with Peter and by implication with the others and with those who will take that job on in generations to come. This is Jesus' own job. And he wants you to do it in the church and in the world. And just in case there should be any doubt and people should look and think this is the beginning of a hierarchy or it's, we want the better jobs, Lord, what about this man? Jesus says, never mind about him. You follow me. And I need to tell you, we all need that message again and again because there are high-profile jobs and low-profile jobs in the kingdom of God. And let those among you who would be the leaders become the servants of all because that's what Jesus himself did. And we, do you know, Bishop Stephen Neal was, I was privileged to call him a friend in the last years of his life and I worked with him on the revision of his book on uh, the, the, the interpretation of the New Testament in the late 19th and then through the 20th century. And the, Stephen Neal ends the book, and I left the ending intact with an exposition of this passage. And I've often thought it must have been deeply personal to him. When Stephen Neal was a young man, he was a fellow of Trinity, Trinity College, Cambridge, at the age of 20, and uh, the intellectual creme de la creme de la creme. And he had the world at his feet, and people were saying to him, there is no job in church or state that you couldn't do if you want to. So what did he do? He went off and became a missionary in India, much to the horror of the Fellows of Trinity, who weren't used to people doing that sort of thing when they were Fellows of Trinity. And he taught schoolboys in a school in India. And he became a bishop in India. And then he had some kind of breakdown and had to come back to the UK. And lots of people said, well, they'll make him a bishop in, India, in England and quite possibly he could be archbishop. He's such an able man. And they never did. He was moved from one job to another and he did bits of this and bits of that and he went around the world doing all sorts of things, watching people who had a tenth of his intellectual and pastoral ability, filled jobs that were high profile. And when I heard Stephen Neal talking about, what is that to you? You follow me. I thought, you know about this. You've been there. There's a real humility about that. I tell that just to honor him and to make the point. So John is all about, here is the new world. You've got to go and, dare I say, and be Jesus for that new world. How can you possibly do that? That is far too large a task. John faces that question and says, that's why you get given the Spirit. Paul faces exactly the same question and comes up with exactly the same answer. 
This is the point of pneumatology, of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Not to give you a new and exciting spirituality for its own sake, though my goodness the Spirit will if you let him, but to enable you to be Jesus for the church and the world. Then we turn back to Luke and we come, of course, to that wonderful, beloved, inexhaustible story of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. I won't... Uh, look at the early bit of the chapter, but on the road to Emmaus are these two disciples, Cleopas and his companion, and uh, I, most of the time I think this is probably uh, Cleopas's wife, I think it's probably a husband and wife going back to Emmaus, and their hopes and expectations have been dashed. I'm sure you all know the story if you don't soak yourself in it sometime, because it is just a wonderful story. But Jesus comes and again incognito, they don't recognize him. This is such a common feature of the Easter stories, and yet it is so unexpected. If you were making up a resurrection story 50 years after the event, believe me, you would not do it like this. You wouldn't have women as your first witnesses for a start in that world, and you certainly wouldn't have Jesus not be recognized. Somehow they don't recognize him, and yet he starts in telling them the story. The great story, the biblical story, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And that doesn't mean, guess what, there's a proof text from Isaiah 53. And oh yes, there's another proof text from Daniel 7. And there's a couple of verses in Zechariah and so on. That's not how to read the scriptures. We're talking about the entire narrative of the creator God whose world rebels and so who enters into covenant with Abraham and whose covenant people rebel, and so they get into exile, and then God makes promises of what's going to happen after that. But we haven't forgotten the main story. This is the love story between the creator God and his lovely world. And it ends with three people sitting in a house, and one of them breaking a loaf and being recognized. The eyes of them both were opened and they knew him. Where have you heard that before? Genesis chapter 3. The eyes of them both were opened after they'd eaten the forbidden fruit and they knew that they were naked. This is the moment of redemption. This is the beginning of the forgiven world. This is what the scriptures were really all leading to. And as well, of course, I, I, I keep referring to various things. I've written this up in Challenge of Jesus. The last two chapters of the Challenge of Jesus include this. But those two on the road to Emmaus, Luke has framed his gospel in such a way that we have these two sad and saying it's three days now and Jesus is dead and what are we going to do? Think back to the beginning of the gospel in Luke 2. When Joseph and Mary have gone three days' journey and haven't found Jesus, because they have gone a day's journey from Jerusalem and haven't found Jesus among the company. So they go back to Jerusalem anxious and look for him for three days. And finally they find him in the temple. And he says, didn't you know I had to be about my father's business? Same story. Give or take, mutatis mutandis. Luke has framed his gospel with anxious people looking for Jesus. And finding him in the place which they never thought of, but which was actually the most obvious place. And Luke has told this story in such a way as to set a pattern for church life from that day to this. Did not our hearts burn within us on the road as he opened the scriptures to, to us? And they went back and told the others what had happened and how he had been made known in the breaking of the bread. 
It's so simple, so artless almost, and yet it is the pattern which in Acts Luke will emphasize again and again. The scriptures and the bread breaking, they belong together. This is how we know who Jesus is, by telling the great story and then coming to have our eyes opened as the bread is broken. But it's not just for us as individuals. Verses 44 to 53 in Luke, the final bit of Luke 24. Thus it is written, verse 46, again, the scriptures, that the Messiah is to suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, verse 47, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. And that is, of course, reaffirmed in Acts. What does that mean? We tend to hear that in such a radically individualistic way. And of course, every single individual does need to repent and receive forgiveness of sins. That's part of the inalienable heart of the gospel. But this is not just about you as an individual and you as an individual. This is the way of life for God's new world. Where can you see it happening? South Africa? Isn't it interesting? Who would have thought 20 years ago that there would be such a thing as a commission of truth and reconciliation at which white thugs and black thugs would come and tell the ghastly, sordid stories and say sorry and begin the generation-long, costly process of reconciliation. That's the message. We can't do it in Britain. We've got a problem on our doorstep called Northern Ireland. We desperately need that to happen and it's not happening. You can all go around the globe in your mind's eye and pick out many other situations. Repentance and forgiveness of sins is not just about me getting it right with God. It's about the world getting it back together again. That's the message. We have hardly begun to put it into operation. My brothers and sisters, I pray that we're not in that sense living in the last... We are living in the last days. But I pray that we are living, in fact, in the first days. And that this generation in the new millennium will seek to bring the message of forgiveness and healing and repentance to the world in a new way. Not to the downplaying of the individual relationship with God, but to the outworking of the relationship that we must have with one another. And it's all to be sustained by worship. They go back to the temple and are in the temple worshipping Jesus and blessing God. The worship element, if you like, is central and non-negotiable. And I've got an eye on the clock and I'm going back to Matthew 28, which is uh, a stranger and shorter story than Luke or John, but still extremely important and still sends shockwaves through where we are. Matthew 28 includes this strange little passage about the chief priests and the guards and the, 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 the priests and the elders devising a plan to bribe the guards at the tomb to tell them his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if there's trouble, we'll sort it out and make it all right for you. You know, there are still all sorts of people who desperately try to hush up the news of resurrection because it is a huge threat. And sometimes even we in the church who believe in the resurrection have tried to belittle the event to turn it into simply Jesus is alive again and so I can get to know him. That is gloriously true, but it doesn't begin to get the meaning of the resurrection which is in the four Gospels. There are all sorts of ways of hushing up the resurrection. The rationalist denial and the Christian belittling among them. 
people have always tried to hush it up. Because, verse 18, we have hardly started to come to terms with the claim that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. When we read that, we tend, I think, to think that it really means all authority in heaven is given to Jesus, and we're not quite sure about earth, so we hurry on to the other things. But it's because he has authority on earth that the church has the right to go and make disciples. And the, the making of disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe everything that Jesus has commanded them, is not simply saying, here is a form of spirituality and a way of life and ethics and so on, which you might find attractive or comfortable and you might like to try it on for size. That's how the gospel, so-called, is often preached today. It's not that. It's an authoritative announcement. And of course in our culture, our multi-pluralistic culture, if you make the announcement as an authoritative announcement, you are bound to have people saying, who do you think you are? What right have you got to say that this is the truth and something else isn't? And the Christian has to take a deep breath and say as humbly as she or he can, I believe in the Jesus to whom all authority is given in heaven and on earth. But notice, Jesus has redefined authority. Authority does not consist in yelling at people and if they disagree with you, beating them up. Authority consists in loving them enough to die for them. Until we've learnt that, maybe we won't be able to get to Matthew 28, 18 either. But again, as with Luke ending with worship, so Matthew ends teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you. And remember, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Where does that come from? Luke framed his gospel one way. Matthew has framed his gospel another. Matthew chapter 1. His name shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. And now here is Jesus, who is the true God with us, even to the end of the age. That's Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, picked up here in 28, 20. And it's because of the strange presence of Jesus with us that we ourselves are sustained in the work that we then have to do, the work of mission, the work of going out into the world to make not just converts who might feel good about themselves now that they've got a new religion, but disciples, learners, baptized ones. And remember that though baptism in many of our churches seems a fairly easy thing to do, there are many parts of the world today where people who get baptized don't live very long afterwards because their families will be out to get them. Baptism means signing on with Jesus. And if Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth, the other authorities are not going to like it. How does that work out? Several of you asked me questions about this, and I just want to say <clears throat> one thing, and then no doubt you'll come back to me on it in the Q&A. The question of how you relate the authority of God and of Jesus over all things in heaven and earth to the reality of authority in a village, a town, a city, a country, a continent, a globe, is one of the great questions of our time. The Enlightenment from the last 200 years managed to do politics and religion in a quite new way and in the process held at arm's length 
the great tradition of Christian political thought which had gone on from the very early days, from the apologists and people like Irenaeus in the second century, right through to the 18th century. So much so that most Christians today don't even know that these questions have been wrestled with very seriously by major thinkers in several different traditions. Fortunately, my friend and colleague Oliver O'Donovan in Oxford, Oliver O'Donovan, has both written a couple of books about this, and he and his wife have produced a textbook of Christian political thought from Irenaeus to Grotius. If you look up O'Donovan or Oliver O'Donovan on the Amazon.com website, you will find these books that I'm talking about. Because this is not something we can just give a glib answer to. We have come to this question with those enlightenment either-ors of either politics or religion. And we find Matthew 28, 18 staring us in the face saying it's not as easy as that. And we also find Romans 13, and people are waving Romans 13 around at the moment. I've tried to write about that in the commentary on Romans in that section and about its relevance for us today. Romans 13 is not the only thing Paul has to say about politics and theology. In fact, much of Paul's writing is about the fact that Jesus is Lord, therefore Caesar isn't. But because Paul doesn't want his hearers to collapse into an easy way of saying, well, if Jesus is Lord, therefore we won't give any allegiance to any human authorities at all. He says, no, that's not the point. God wants his world and different societies to be ordered, to be just, partly at least in order to protect the weak. Because where there is not order in society, the bullies always get away with it. You've got to have authorities and God intends that they should be there. It's part of the meaning of Colossians 1, 15 through 20. But the authorities can very easily imagine that they're God. And part of the point of Romans 13 is that they're not God, they're answerable to God. And if you look at what Paul does with the authorities in Acts, he routinely reminds them of their obligations to God, and they routinely don't like it. Romans 13 is, in any case, about authorities within a particular state. It doesn't say anything about wider questions of what happens between states, which is why later Christian thought wrestled with possible questions of so-called just war and so on. I'm not an expert on that, though. If somebody wants to raise it later, we, we, we could look at that. Somehow, though, we have to come to terms with the fact that if we want to be biblical Christians, the landscape that we have grown up in that holds politics and religion at arm's length simply won't do. We've got to reconfigure that landscape. Get some theological landscape gardeners in. Do the job. But I want to end this presentation with Mark 16. Now Mark 16 is a puzzle of course because as it stands in the best manuscripts it ends at verse 8 where the women run away from the tomb in fear and amazement and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. And you will know that there's a shorter extra ending and a longer extra ending and you will know that maybe 95% at least of scholars are convinced that those were neither of them the ending that Mark wrote. 
There is then a huge debate as to whether Mark did write an ending which is now lost and which those endings replace, or whether Mark intended to stop his gospel at verse 8. And there's been a growth industry in the last generation of people saying, of course, Mark is such a wonderful, dark, mysterious gospel, ending with the women saying nothing to anyone for they were afraid. How, what a wonderful thing that is. I, I tried to believe that because I like those sort of dark, mysterious theories. But actually, I gave that up some years ago. I think, I think there was an ending which is now lost. But I also believe in providential accidents. And I think maybe God intended us to have the ending cut off like this. Because that gives us something of the flavor. And I want to leave you with this. Perhaps this is where we have to start as we come to terms with being Easter people. Because if you think that you can be an Easter person, somebody who can walk through the big door that Jesus has forced open, somebody who can conduct the orchestra to play Jesus' new tune, if you think, yeah, I could do that, that sounds rather fun, then you haven't even begun to understand what's going on. The sign that you have begun to understand what's going on is that you find yourself in terror and amazement at the thought of a new world like that. And maybe for a day or two you need to say nothing to anyone because you're afraid of what it's going to mean. Because we come to the church, we come to the Bible, we come to our Christian religious bits and pieces so often like the women coming to the tomb on Easter morning. We want to be there where Jesus is and we want to do the religious duties because he's our person and we're his people and that's fine. But we don't expect him to have burst out of the tombs where we imprison him. And to be saying, he's off to Galilee and you better tell people to follow him. There is a new world and it's all going to be different. That's very scary. I'm scared. Believe me. It's one thing to perform acts of homage to a distant Jesus. Church is awfully good at that. A Jesus who isn't likely to disturb us and our world very much. It's quite another thing to find that he's alive, far more alive than we are. And calling us not only to share that new quality of aliveness, but to make it happen in his world. And the way it happens is through the Spirit. It's that message of forgiveness and reconciliation. A new way of being human. A new way of doing politics. A new way for God's world. Do we have the courage for that?
healed the flame 